Welcome to the Central Vineyard Podcast. We're really pleased you've chosen to join us today. Our vision is to be a transformational church community, following Jesus, joining God in the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us in person if you're able to on a Sunday morning. If you would like more details, you can visit our website at centralvineyard.co.uk. I'm Deborah. It's always a privilege to bring you the word. For those of you that don't know me, I'm on the team here at Central Vineyard. And we're going to continue our series that Dan kicked off last week, looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus in John's Gospel. If you missed Dan's talk, it is available on our website, centralvineyard.co.uk, and all our mainstream streaming platforms. It's well worth a listen. I commend it to you. This week, our reading is found in John chapter 6, verse 35. If you've got a Bible handy, feel free to turn to it. Otherwise, just listen. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Thanks be to God. So John's gospel as a whole literary work is structured according to seven signs and seven names that Jesus worked to reveal God. We like the number seven. But this idea and structure of seven wasn't entirely original to John. Seven is the Hebrew number of completion and in the Hebrew Bible, which we know as the Old Testament, there are seven compound names for God, Yahweh my healer, Yahweh my refuge, Yahweh my provider and so on. And this week we're going to look at Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. That's the most popular translation, but it's not actually the most accurate. If we have a little linguistics moment, Yahweh is the literal Hebrew rendering of God's original I am. When Moses asked the burning bush and God told Moses that he was I am, the name he gave himself in Hebrew is Yahweh. And then Yireh comes from the Hebrew to see. To see in the sense of see to it. So Yahweh Yireh literally becomes God will see to it. Have you ever had an experience that has caused you anxiety, caused you to overreact, to lose sleep, to worry? I know when we're little and we're learning about the world, sometimes certain situations can feel like a real crisis. You know, when we can't get the shoelace tied and the world's going to end, or we can't get the plat to go right and we're going to be late for school, or even worse, this never happens in our house. The PE kit has evaporated from the face of the earth just when you need to leave the house. The panic builds and if we're lucky, an older sibling or a parent or another grown-up, they come along and they say, hey, I'm going to see to that. I'll see to it. And they enter into that escalating disaster. Sometimes the outcome isn't always what we want. Sometimes it is, you know, let's get the shoelace tied together. We'll see to it. Other times it's not what we want. Hey, let's see to it. We haven't really got time for plaits, but let's do a ponytail. Or if we're really fortunate, as the voice floats down the stairs saying, I can't find my pee kit. Don't worry, I'll see to it. Here it is in the clean washing basket. As we get older, that rising panic and impending sense of disaster is reduced as we learn some restraint and emotional control. But the truth is that we never quite lose that altogether and something is going to crop up that leaves us losing sleep. It could be that we're worrying about a child. You know, a child who's over 18 and we thought, you know, once they were grown up, we wouldn't have to worry quite as much. But actually, we still worry just in a different way. Maybe we've got a new job and we're worried that we're going to get found out. 
maybe we've had a job for a while and somebody new has come along and we're worried that we're going to get overtaken. Maybe worrying about our parents, our finances, whatever our circumstances are. They cause us to lose sleep, to overreact or to worry and to feel anxious. Yahweh will see to it. And this series, looking at who Jesus says he is, it's not an intellectual exercise about the names of God through the poetry of John. It has everything to do with our day-to-day life. It has everything to do with your worries about your children. It has everything to do with your concerns about your job. It has everything to do with your finances and all the actual circumstances that you find yourself in. So who is God and how can we know him? Well, we start by knowing his name. God will see to it. Jesus harked back to this idea of Yahweh Yireh when he said, I am the bread of life. But why bread? When God wanted to reveal himself to the masses, what did he give them? Bread, manna in the wilderness, every single day. So they would know what he was like. And when God wanted everyone to remember the big story that he was authoring across generations, what did he give them? Bread, a meal, Passover, to remember him. Later, when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, what was the first thing the deceiver tempted Jesus with? Bread. Turn these stones into bread. And then later on, when Jesus wanted everyone to understand what they were going to witness in the crucifixion, it was bread that he tore in front of his disciples, representing his body. At the end of the book of Revelation, of pictures painted of heaven and earth being reunited as one, of an eternity of love and peace, it's going to be like bread like a wedding feast that never ends. Bread is the imagery that Jesus uses to bring us into his truth. So let's delve a little deeper. First of all, I want to talk about the sign that takes place just before our reading in John chapter six. If you've not ever opened a Bible, it may just be that even you have heard of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with some young lad's lunch. 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It's not just a miracle, it's a sign which is a very intentional miracle performed to reveal something true about God. A sign is a miracle that points beyond the spectacle of the miracle to the identity of the miracle worker. This one is the only one that's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So actually it's really, really important. And it's not solely a miracle of provision, some really efficient catering. Jesus is up to something a bit more than that. And we're going to go on a bit of a whistle-stop tour of the Bible. I think we can all keep up. And don't worry, I'm going to signpost everything. So let's go back to Exodus, way back at the beginning of the Bible. Exodus is where God shows up to Israel in desperate need of rescue. He turns up in a burning bush. He calls himself I am, sends down ten plagues, parts the Red Sea, and then sends down bread from heaven, manna. As the Israelites wander through the wilderness. So when God shows up and he marches you and your family from baking bricks under the boot of an oppressor to a promised land of freedom and prosperity. You're going to want to remember that, right? You're going to want to mark that. And God gave those Israelites a Passover meal to remember all the signs that pointed to him. A way to taste and remember the God who had delivered them, the signs that pointed to someone beyond themselves. Excuse me. So if we go back to John chapter 6, Israel's neck is under the boot of a new oppressor, the Romans. And they have been crying out to God for another liberator, one like Moses. And the Jewish people at the time believed there were signs they were supposed to watch out for, which would indicate this great liberator, this saviour's arrival. One of the signs they've been told to watch out for was manna will fall from heaven again. He will give us bread in the wilderness today, just like he did back then. 
So at the end of the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 12, we read these words. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 basketfuls. 12, 12 baskets, not 11, not 13, 12. Why 12 though? Because it's not about leftovers. This is a sign and every detail matters. Nothing is left to chance here and there is also no wastage. This miracle is pointing to God. The 12 baskets represent 12 tribes of Israel and everyone in that crowd of Israelites would know what Jesus is saying and where he's pointing. In verse 14 of John chapter 6 we read, All the people saw the sign Jesus performed and they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world, the prophet, the promised saviour, the one who will liberate us again like he did then, the one who will give us bread in the wilderness. That's a good start. But as someone used to say when I was growing up, there's more. This sign, this one, this feeding of the 5,000, that's the only one recorded in all four Gospels. When we take a look at Matthew, we find it's followed by another almost identical miracle. So we're going to go and have a little visit to the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus feeds the 4,000. It's exactly the same sign, performed in exactly the same way, in a new place and in front of new people. What's going on here? Well, sticking with the idea of bread, for which I make no apologies, it's kind of like a sandwich. And what I mean by that is the gospel sometimes contain these bundles, these literary bundles, where you'll find two parallel stories, like the top and bottom slices of bread of a sandwich. And then in between, you have these couple of accounts which provide context to those two parallel stories. So this feeding of the crowds in Matthew can be looked at like this. The feeding of the 5,000 is story one, which is the top slice of bread. And then there's three little accounts, in between, followed by story two, the bottom slice of bread, which is the feeding of the 4,000. And in the same way that you wouldn't take a sandwich apart and eat it one ingredient at a time, you would take a bite of the whole thing. We're going to do that here. We're going to take a, a bite and taste what Jesus is actually serving up here. So story one, Jesus feeds the 5,000. The disciples collect 12 basketfuls of bread, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel meaning that Jesus is the bread of life for Israel. Okay, so here are the middle ingredients. First of all, Jesus walks on water. The disciples have been sent ahead in their boat. A storm comes up, and even though Jesus has already shown them the sign that God will see to it, they have a bit of a panic until Jesus sees to it. Then our second story. Jesus has a disagreement with the priests about purity. He essentially tells the priests their ideas about purity are backwards and it's what comes out of your mouth, not what goes in, that makes you spiritually unclean. And then Jesus goes straight from this disagreement into our third story, our third piece of filling in the sandwich about purity, to an encounter with a Canaanite woman. Now to the people he's just been arguing with, this Canaanite woman would have been the most spiritually impure person ever. She's from Canaan, and they're the ethnic enemies of Israel. And let's just pause in this story for a moment. The Canaanites were the people who were occupying the promised land in Exodus. They were seen as a constant threat to the purity of Israel, and they were referred to 
as the seven nations, all nations, the Hebrew number of completion, everyone except the Israelites, the whole world except for the Israelites. So this Canaanite woman who is impure and unclean and the enemy of the Jewish people comes and kneels before Jesus and asks for his help. Jesus replies, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, according to the purity rites that Jesus just disagreed with, dogs are an unclean animal. And to call Gentiles who are non-Jews a dog was a common slur that the Israelites would say to non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles in the first century. So Jesus' response to this woman seems hugely offensive. He's just called her a dog. That doesn't really fit with what we know about Jesus. But remember, there's no wastage in scripture in the kingdom, certainly not in Jesus' words or his actions here. So what's going on? He wants to teach the people around him as well as bring healing to this woman's daughter. She says, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus replies with the words, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. You have great faith. Nowhere else in Matthew's gospel does Jesus name anyone else's faith as great. This is the only time. The highest praise given to any person in the entire life and ministry of Jesus in Matthew was directed to the person deemed the most spiritually and socially marginalised person to ever act with him. So whilst it appears that Jesus starts off by being rude and offensive to the Canaanite woman, he shows us that actually it's intentional. He's going to honour her. He's going to give her the bread and he's going to heal our daughter and he is essentially sending a signal that says you think you know who's in you think you know what purity is but actually we're going to have to shift our thinking a little bit and that's the middle of our sandwich so let's go and take a look at our bottom piece of bread the feeding of the four thousand so this is an identical scene to our first piece of bread the feeding of the five thousand the crowds are following jesus as he teaches the masses and heals the sick the day is coming to a close. It's a remote place. There's nothing to eat. And Jesus asked his disciples if they've got anything. Have a guess what they've got. One young lad's lunch. A couple of fish, seven loaves of bread. It's identical except for one detail. The difference here is that Jesus crossed the lake to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is not Israelite territory anymore. This is Gentile territory. This is spiritually impure territory. The people gathered around him this time, hungry and in need of food, are not Israelites or Jews. Jesus is surrounded by a massive crowd of people who are considered to be second-class citizens outside of Yahweh's providing hand, outside of the promises of God, outside of I will see to it. To this crowd, Jesus performs the same sign. He told the crowd to sit on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the two fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and they turned to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up how many basketfuls? Seven. Seven basketfuls of broken pieces were left over this time. Seven baskets, like seven nations. Like the name for the Canaanites. Seven, as in the Hebrew number of completion. Seven baskets for all nations. Seven baskets for all the people outside of the Israelite Jewish people. 
Do you see what Jesus is showing to us here? Twelve baskets that say, I'm the provider of Israel. And seven baskets say, I will see to it for the whole world, for all people. Not just to the carriers of the promise, the descendants of Exodus, but to every last one, to the most forgotten, to the most disqualified, to the most dismissed, to the ones who thought they were unqualified or outside of the promises of my providing hand. I have a place for you and it is a place of honour. Come to my table. Come and eat. Now, I know this is a little bit more intense than usual. Every move that Jesus makes here in this sandwich is so charged with meaning. And we kind of zoom in on that detail, which enables us to see that bigger arc. So if we're all all right, we're going to keep going. We go back to John chapter 6, verse 25. And if you feel like we've dotted about all over the place, feel free to go back and chew on John chapter 6 and Matthew 14 and Matthew 15 and everything we talk about this morning. Don't just take my word for it. Check the Gospels. See what your prayer time tells you. So we've talked about Jesus giving bread in the wilderness. In John chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus has performed a miraculous water crossing, reminding the Israelites of Exodus, of bread and Moses parting the Red Sea and Joshua parting the Jordan. And when he's asked in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replies, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Not because you saw the signs. If we skip again like a stone across the water, and head to verse 30 in John chapter 6. Jesus asked, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Not just once, but day after day after day. Are you the saviour we've been waiting for? A saviour like Moses? And Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven. But it is my father who's given you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, not Moses, God. Yahweh Yireh, God will see to it. Let's keep going. Sir, they said, then always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is saying, I am the provision that's been given to you in the wilderness of your life. I am who the sign is pointing to. At this, the Jews began to grumble. They want the miracle again and again and again. They want to be dazzled, but they don't want to see who the sign is pointing to. In verse 53, Jesus tells them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. In verse 66, we read, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's a lot to take in, I know. So let's pull that together. We can look at this account where Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. That comes across as cannibalism, like straight up, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But as with all that he said and did, Jesus said it this way on purpose. He said it to both offend, to wake people up, and to promise. That comment about blood would have been offensive to his listeners. We've already touched on the Jewish purity laws at the time. And it was offensive to come into contact with blood. But actually what's ha happening here is Jesus pointing to his definition of purity again. 
his extension of the boundary lines of the family of God. In order to actually be able to extend the family of God, as Jesus was showing us all the way through our sandwich, he was going to have to disrupt those who thought they knew where the boundary lines of God were. Those who were sure they knew who was in and who was out and how they got there. Jesus was saying, we're going to have to shift our thinking. We're going to have to shift our welcome. That way that you thought was the way in by what you put in is not right. With the full context of his life, the beauty of this invitation will become apparent and be so clear to anyone who looks at it. But in this moment, it's hard to hear. It's an invitation that would have offended. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the person the sign points to. Take my life into your life. I am the bread of life. Bread, made of wheat, mostly. You don't need me to tell you that. But the human body cannot process raw wheat. I don't know if you knew that. If we were to try and live off wheat, we could eat a few bites. But if we tried to eat enough to actually nourish ourselves or to fulfil our appetites, it would make us really unwell. Literally, it would make our stomach turn and cause us to throw up. Before it's been ground down into flour and turned into dough and baked into bread, wheat cannot be digested. For it to become nourishment, it has to be processed. And Jesus' words here, I'm the bread of life. Well, they had to be processed too. What was offensive and seemingly indigestible, excuse me, became a ridiculously beautiful promise. And therein lies a principle. Sometimes a word from God has to be processed in order to be revealed as good news. If you follow Jesus, you're going to have a moment at some point where there's a word from God that's got to be processed in order for it to be revealed as good news. Do you know the kind of experience I mean? So much of Jesus' teaching is bread that nourishes our soul, but there are parts that taste like raw wheat, that challenge us. And here in this moment of verse 66, where some followers turned away, but the 12 disciples stayed with him. There were those that didn't stick around to process, but these 12 disciples did. And for the times that Peter put his foot in it and said the wrong thing, this time he absolutely nails it. This time he says to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus has not revealed a God we can perfectly understand. Not at all. But he has revealed a God we can perfectly trust. A God who wears my suffering and my struggles alongside me. A God who even when he's seen the very, very worst of me, will not ever leave or forsake me. God who even when he says something that turns my stomach, walks beside me every step of the way as we process that word. I can trust the God who does not condemn me for what I see or for what I don't see, but shows it to me and introduces me to how far the boundaries of his love, his grace and his mercy really go. You see, trusting the person behind the hard saying, trusting God, means that sometimes a word from God has to be processed in order to be good news. But even if it has to be processed, the truth is that every single word from his lips is good news. Peter wasn't any less offended or confused than the others. But what he was essentially saying was this, I'm staying. I believe you are who you say you are, so I'm staying. I'm going to sort out the confusion, I'm going to sort out the offence right here with you. And that's the invitation to us. That's what we're called to do when we run into a part of the Bible we don't like, or makes us wince, or we find confusing and baffling. Staying means we don't avoid or ignore passages that read as problematic to us. It means we hold our most real and honest questions before God. 
It means we're real with God and ask for his help. It means doing the hard work. Hard work might be repairing hurts we've experienced from others here in our community, when avoidance would be easier. It means doing the hard work of forgiving and asking for forgiveness. It means confessing sin patterns we've confessed before, bringing it back to God, even when we feel like a stuck record. Staying means that some bread will be immediately nourishing to us and other teaching will have to be processed before it becomes good news. But it is all good news. And what's the reward for staying? It's a promise. And what's the promise? It's a meal. Jesus actually breaks the bread and pours the wine. This meal connects the dots of the story that Jesus told in the wilderness. What first turned our stomachs has been turned into the promise fulfilled. I am the bread of life. I will see to it. Take and eat. This is my blood poured out for you. For wheat to be made into bread, it must go through a violent process, harvested at the root, threshed against a hard surface to remove the grain shell. Winnowed to strip away the chaff and then ground down into a fine flour. When it's completely unrecognisable as wheat, even though it's still the same substance, it's kneaded into dough, baked under extreme heat until it rises. And then after it's risen, the raw wheat has been processed into bread that gives life. Later on, on the night of the Last Supper, the disciples watched as Jesus was cut, beaten, ground so thoroughly that he was not recognisable, even though the substance of him was still there. He was threshed, winnowed and baked through unimaginable violence to rise. The promise of the gift that won the greatest victory. Jesus told us every time we gather to share the meal to remember him, that we will join him in a feast in eternity, one that never ends. So as I bring this in, I want to share with you the three phrases that bring the most joy to the human heart are this. I love you. I forgive you. And dinner's ready. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? I love you. Even when you didn't know me, I loved you. I forgive you. I've already seen to it. And dinner is ready. Come and eat.